Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks today for your grace. God, it wasn't by our might, it wasn't by our strength, it wasn't by our good works that we have been saved. It's through the grace of God in Jesus Christ, administered by the Holy Spirit. God, I pray you would help us today to leave this place with a better understanding of what grace is, what it looks like, and how to spread it, God. We thank you for that amazing grace that saved us. We thank you for the amazing grace that keeps us. We thank you for the grace that is found in the blessings that you give us every single day, Lord. We just praise you. If we praised you for a thousand years, it wouldn't be enough. If we had a thousand tongues to sing, we could never sing enough praise. We could never declare your greatness enough. Father, I just pray you'd be in this service. Speak to every single heart. And God, if there's somebody here today that does not know you through your son Jesus, I pray today would be the day that they come to know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. And Rushwood said together, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for being here today, worshiping with us. Um, little piggyback off the Rhett Walker video that we showed. That's about, you can find that video online on YouTube, and that's about half of the video. Um, but we just wanted to give you a little bit of a flavor of who he is. A lot of people know his music. Not a lot of people recognize his name always. Some do, some don't. Um, but we were excited to have the opportunity to get him to come and minister here at our church. And there's some other people excited. We had one lady get in touch with us this week, and she said she was planning to drive from Maryland to come to the concert. So that's a six-hour drive just to come to the concert, and she's excited about it. And, you know, we could probably get in this area. We could probably get one of the more well-known Southern Gospel groups to come in, and we could probably pack this church out for the concert. And they would probably, everybody who wanted to hear the Southern Gospel concert would come in the door saved and they would leave saved. But the reason we wanted to get somebody like Rhett is because we believe that he can bridge a gap. He can bridge uh, over to maybe some of the people in our community who don't know Jesus. Uh, he, his story, uh, the part of the video that you didn't see, he grew up as a pastor's son and uh, knew how to live for the Lord, but just decided not to decided to go and do his own thing, and he eventually came to a point where he realized Rhett's own thing wasn't working and he needed to try Jesus' plan for his life. And so he's committed his life now to singing about the gospel and to reaching people with the good news about Jesus, and uh, we just believe he's going to be awesome for us. He does kind of, his, his style is kind of southern rock, which I don't know if you know this, but outside of worship music and hymns and Christian music, Southern rock is God's favorite kind of music. I don't know if you knew that or not. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, free bird, right? But anyway, um, I think it's going to be a great concert. I think you're really, really going to enjoy him. What I really want to ask you to do is pick up some of our postcards that we have made and go invite people. Go invite somebody that doesn't know Jesus. Say, hey, I know this is in a church, and I know this is somebody you may never heard of, but you're going to like his music. And even if you go on YouTube, you can even find a version of Simple Man by Leonard Skinner that Rhett Walker does. So tell them that. Whatever you need to do to get them in to hear the gospel and maybe be influenced by the gospel of Jesus Christ that night. But it's going to be a great time. June 23rd, go ahead and make plans to be here. 
and start inviting people to come and be part of this, we really believe God is going to use this. Well, today I am beginning my last full series um, before I go on sabbatical. Let me make sure you understand that right. That doesn't mean today is my last day preaching here for a while. I will be back next Sunday and the next and the next. Um, But this is my last full series that I am preaching um, before I go on sabbatical for six weeks. And Pastor Jason will be taking over as lead pastor during that time. Uh, Not for good, but for those six weeks. And Julia Calicut will be stepping up to be our worship director during those six weeks And the biggest thing I want to do during this sabbatical is hear from God, to hear what he has to say to me as a minister, to me about this church. And so sometimes it's hard to hear God in the midst of all the busyness and everything that goes on. And so I want to take time to really hear from him, get his direction for everything. And so uh, we want you to go ahead and please start praying for me. I've been praying, dear Lord, no emergencies in the weeks leading up to this sabbatical. And dear Lord, please, no emergencies during the six weeks of the sabbatical. And even when I get back, no emergencies would be nice for a little while. Praying that everything would be smooth. Um, But please pray for uh, Pastor Blake will be preaching one Sunday of the sabbatical. And so pray for him. Pray for Pastor Jason, who will be preaching most of it. And then Julia Calica, who will be taking over our worship. By the way, Jason and his wife, Michelle and Julia, have gone to Georgia for the Passion Worship Conference. They're down there trying to learn a little bit more about worship so that we can have an even better worship experience on Sunday morning. Praise God in even newer and and better and, and more wonderful ways. And so pray for them as they travel back and pray that God has given them something that will bless our church. Um, but we are beginning this new series and we're, it's called Paul the Apostle of Christ. And there was a movie that was just out by that same name. Great movie. If you get a chance to check that out, especially if you like anything about history, anything about the Bible, it kind of gives you an overview of what the early church was like. Um, but this, this series will not be about the movie or really necessarily tied into the movie, except for the fact it's on the same subject. This guy named Paul, who is one of the greatest stories in the history of the world. The Apostle Paul, or as he was known originally as Saul of Tarsus, was ethnically Jewish. He was born to Jewish parents, but he was a Roman citizen. And so he had Roman citizenship, but he was ethnically Jewish. And he was born in a place called Tarsus, which is in modern-day Turkey. If you can see that on the map, down at the bottom, if you can see where it says Jordan, that's the area where Israel is, so kind of... Almost directly north of there, that's the city called Tarsus, again, in modern-day Turkey, which was a very, very Christian area in the days of the early church. Paul's Jewish name was Saul, and he spent his 20s, the years of his uh, 20, 21, 22, that sort of age, studying to be a Pharisee. Pharisees were a sect of Judaism. Pharisee actually means the separated ones. And so they thought they were a little bit higher than everybody else. They had a little bit better spiritual knowledge than everyone else. And Paul spent the years of his 20s studying to be a Pharisee. Well, about the time he was approved and he became one of the number of the Pharisees, this strange new group started to emerge in the area around Jerusalem. And in that day and time, there were a lot of messiahs or or people who claimed to be the messiah because the Jewish people were looking for a messiah to come, an anointed one to come. 
they, they were several people who came and they claimed that they were uh, the Messiah of Israel. And what would happen is they would start to amass a following and people would start to become their disciples or their followers. And some of them would even have rebellions against the Roman government. And the Roman government would crush them and they'd put them down and they would kill the one who claimed to be the Messiah. And then all their followers would scatter. And so whatever was building up just went ended up being nothing. But this one was a little bit different. About the time probably that Paul would have become a Pharisee, there was a guy named Jesus of Nazareth who came on the scene. And he claimed also to be the Messiah of Israel. And the same thing happened. It was actually a conspiracy of the Jews and the Romans, and they decided that they would kill him, they would crucify him, they would put him on the cross. And you guys know the story, or you probably wouldn't be in church today. But they decided to kill Jesus, crucify him, put him in the grave, sealed it over with a stone with a Roman uh, signet on there to say that he was done, it was over, he was finished. But three days later, he emerged out of the tomb victorious. At least that's what his followers claimed at this time. But strangely enough, he did not, uh, he, uh, the, the group that started follow Jesus did not dissipate after his death like all these other groups did. These other groups, you would kill the Messiah, everything would scatter. They killed Jesus and all of a sudden it kept growing. It kept moving. The, the, it actually was called the followers of the way. You may know that, that in the early church, we weren't called Christians. Not right off the bat. We were actually called followers of the way because Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. And so those who followed Jesus were followers of the way. It was only in Antioch years later that they actually began to be called Christians. But these followers of the way, there began to be more and more of them, and they claimed, look, Jesus didn't stay dead. He actually came out of the grave, and 500 of us saw him while he was alive after he had been killed. He is the risen Lord, and we're following him, and we're proclaiming not that Caesar is Lord, but that Jesus is Lord. And so you find on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 more are added to their number. And the church just continues to grow. And so Paul doesn't want any part of this, or this man named Saul doesn't want any part of this. Being a good Pharisee, he believes there is only one God, and that God does not have a son. And he probably said the Shema every day, Hear, O Israel, our God is one God. And there's no way that this guy named Jesus, in his mind, could have been the Son of God. And so he starts to go, and and, and there's actually a guy named Stephen. This is how powerful the early church was. Stephen wasn't a preacher. He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't any high-ranking member of the early church. He was basically a table waiter. They had selected Stephen along with other guys to make sure the widows in the church got the proper amount of food and that they were taken care of. And so Stephen was one who would bring the food to them and make sure everything was taken care of. And yet we find in the book of Acts that he preaches this sermon right in the face of the Pharisees, right in the face of the Sanhedrin. And the sermon said this, Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And you guys messed up and you crucified him. You killed him. But he, he rose again on the third day, and now he's calling everybody to repent. Well, that makes these Sanhedrin, these Pharisees, so mad that they pick up stones and stone him to death. They kill Stephen. Even though the Bible says his countenance, his face, looked like that of an angel, they decide they're taking him out, they're getting rid of him. While they're doing that, this man named Saul is basically acting as their coat rack. He's standing back here and he's holding their coats and he's watching all their cloaks as they kill this man named Stephen. And the Bible tells us that Saul is giving approval to the death of Stephen. 
Saul wanted to snuff out this thing called the way. He start, wanted to stop, snuff out the movement of Jesus Christ. And he didn't want to stop just in Jerusalem. So he went to the council, he went to the other Pharisees and said, look, I, I want approval to go into Syria. I want to go into Damascus. And if there's any Christians there, any followers of the way, I'm going to get rid of them too. Probably, although we're not specifically told that Saul killed people, we are told that he breathed out murderous threats against the church. So his intention and probably but by his hand, some of the early Christians were killed. And so Saul is going to go, he's going to go into Damascus, he's going to find if there's any Christians, any followers of the way there. He's going to drag them out of their homes, have them arrested, maybe kill some of them. Anyway, he's going to get rid of this cult in his mind that is growing up right under his nose. And so Saul gets permission, he gets papers to go into Damascus. But on the road to Damascus, something amazing happens. A blinding light shows up and a voice from heaven speaks to Saul and he's knocked down. He's actually knocked to the ground and this light literally blinds him, literally takes away his vision. And he hears a voice from heaven and when he hears his voice from heaven, Saul cries out, Who are you, Lord? And the voice replies, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so this man who wants to destroy the church, wants to destroy the name of Jesus, has an encounter with the risen Jesus and his life is about to be changed forever. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so Paul goes blind. Paul is not able, or Saul is not able to see. His sight is removed. He's led by the hand into the city of Damascus. But God sends a guy named Ananias and says, look, I need you to go. I need you to pray over this man named Saul that his sight may be restored. That would be a little bit like after September 11th if God had come, up, come to us and said, hey, there's this man in this city named Osama bin Laden, and I need you to go in and pray for him that his sight would be restored. We'd have been like, nah, nah God, you need to pick somebody else. I don't think I'm about all that. That's what was going on here because Saul was the one trying to destroy the church. But Ananias has enough faith that he goes in, he prays for Saul, his eyes are open. The Bible says something like scales falls off of his eyes, and then he is baptized as a Christian. And from that point on, Saul becomes Paul. He becomes the one that's to preach about Jesus Christ. And he actually starts to preach about Jesus Christ in the synagogues, in the Jewish churches of the day. He goes in and starts to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. Well, those who sent Paul to go in and wipe everybody out, all the Christians out in Damascus, they're not very happy because now the guy that they sent in to take care of this problem is part of the problem, at least from their point of view. And so they're angry and they, and they get word that they're coming to kill Saul, to kill Paul. And the Christians in that city at night actually lower him down over the wall of the city. He couldn't get out of the gate because he would have been caught. They lower him over the wall of the city, help him escape the city. Paul goes into Arabia for three years and gets revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he becomes the greatest Messiah in the history of the Christian church. Or not Messiah, the greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church. The greatest missionary in the history of Christianity. So that all sets up where we are now in the book of Ephesians. Back to the book of Ephesians. We're in chapter 3 if you want to get there with us, and it'll be on the screens for you. But if you want to turn in your Bible or if you want to look it up on your phone, we're in Ephesians chapter 3. And so Paul, his mission is to the Gentiles. His mission is to take the gospel to the world. So in chapter 3, Paul actually starts to offer a prayer for the Ephesian church, and he gets sidetracked. 
Anybody ever have that happen? You start to pray and something else takes your attention or am I the only one? Am I the only one going to admit that? I start to pray and something else kind of pops to mind or something captures my attention. The same thing, it might make you feel a little bit better. The same thing happened to the Apostle Paul here. He starts to offer a prayer, but he gets sidetracked. And for 12 verses, he goes on to remind those in Ephesus, those in this area, uh, what his ministry is all about. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. God's word says this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. That came at you fast and you're like, what in the world was, was that talking about? Let's unpack that a little bit this morning. Paul starts to pray, but then he starts to talk about his ministry. I want us to key in on one key phrase in what we just read today. And that phrase is God's grace, which was given to me for you. God's grace, which was given to me for you. I believe, I believe this firmly, that when God gives us grace, and we're about to define grace in a minute, when God gives us grace, it's not just for us. It's not just to save us, it's not just to bless us. When God gives us grace, it's so that we might share that grace with other people. So that we might lead other people to the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we get into that too far, I want to define what grace is. And we're going to talk about this again kind of at the end of the sermon because I think that our culture has defined grace as something that it's not. They have actually twisted the idea of grace. But there's a a minister named Donald Barnhouse, and I love the definition that he gives of grace. He says, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that stoops is grace. Love that stoops is grace. In other words, grace bends. Grace gets down in the dirt. Grace doesn't stay high and proud and mighty. Grace doesn't walk by on the other side of the street after we've been beat up and left for dead. Grace actually gets down in the gutter and works with those who are in the gutter. A great image of grace, even though we probably wouldn't line up on theology, a great image of grace in history is probably Mother Teresa working with those in India who have been cast away by everybody else, those who are deformed and those with disease, and yet she's there working in you know, a Catholic church, and we wouldn't probably line up 100% in theology there, but work on behalf of God to try to reach these people. Grace stoops. Grace bends down. Grace gets down there where the problem is and tries to fix it. A little diversion here. Anybody remember Pez dispensers? How many of you, okay, show of hands, in your life, how many of you have owned a Pez dispenser or currently own a Pez dispenser? Okay, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll initiate you real quickly. Pez dispensers are these little plastic things. I know that's a technical term. Things is a technical term. Uh, they're these little plastic things, and on top they have some sort of character's head. It might be Mickey Mouse. It might be Darth Vader. It might be Superman. It might be Don. I mean, there, there could be all sorts of different characters on top of these Pez dispensers. But they're these little plastic tubes with these character heads on top, and you can open them up, and inside of the tube that's there you can put what? 
candy. You can put these little rectangular type Pez candies all in there. And when you were in elementary school, if you had a Pez dispenser and you could slip them in your pocket so the teacher would never know about it, you were the man or you were the woman for that day because you would roll up into elementary school with your Pez dispenser in your pocket and you could go around to all your friends and say, hey, you want some candy? You know, and they would grab that and, you know, it was just, you were the man back then if you had that. I even found out online, I looked it up real quick, that there are people who collect Pez dispensers. That's probably not a big surprise to us. And, you know, you can go on eBay and find some of the uh, antique Pez dispensers and rare Pez dispensers and all this crazy stuff. But anyway, the whole purpose of a Pez dispenser is to be kind of a cool way to give you those little candies. And so it was kind of the gimmick. And when you bought one, you got uh, some of the Pez candies with it. And then you could buy refills and all this sort of thing. But the whole purpose of those little things is just to give somebody a piece of candy. Whereas, you know, when you get a little bit older, you just have a roll of candy and you tear, tear a piece of the paper off. Hey, you want a piece of candy? You know, like lifesavers or whatever. Anyway, that's the whole purpose of them. We're supposed to be grace dispensers. Really, as Christians, our whole purpose is to give out grace to other people. Our whole purpose is to have God's grace put into us placed inside of us and our purpose is to take grace to other people take love take take a, a love that stoops to other people that's what we're supposed to be all about i know that sometimes word pictures kind of give us help stories give us help in understanding what things are all about so this morning i want to give you two stories one is a story uh, about somebody who really did a great job of giving grace And the other story is about somebody who withheld grace when they should have given it. And I'll let you try to figure out which one is which. I don't think it's going to take too much guesswork. But the first story I want to tell you is about a guy named Fiorello LaGuardia. Fiorello LaGuardia. If you've ever heard of LaGuardia, it's probably you've heard of the airport in New York City. This guy, Fiorello LaGuardia, was the mayor of New York City during the days of the Depression and also World War II. Very interesting character. First thing you probably need to know about him is his name, Fiorello, is Italian for little flower. I ain't never naming my son little flower. I can just tell you that right now. But that's what this dude was named, Fiorello. And besides having a name that said he was little, he actually was little. This guy was five foot two. And as, as, at his max height, he was five foot two, even after he was a grown adult. He was half Jewish, he was half lapsed Catholic. His dad was Catholic, but they never went to Mass, never went to church. And so he kind of came from a mixed heritage. When he married, he, he married and he lost his first wife to disease. He lost his first child to disease. So he had tragedy within his life. He decided he would run for public office. He decided he wanted to be a politician. And he ran time and time again, and he was defeated time and time again. By the way, if you study politics at all, they will tell you that on average, the taller candidate usually wins. So if you're five foot two, you're probably going to lose a lot more than you're going to win just because of presence. He was a Republican who loved Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And if you know anything about history, those two things just don't seem to go together. He had all these things working against him. But then he finally won. Then he finally became the mayor of New York City, maybe the most important city in the entire world. And so you have to figure that Fiorello LaGuardia understood that there was a lot of God's grace in him getting to that position. There was a lot of God's blessing in him actually becoming the mayor after many times of defeat, after heartbreak and tragedy and a tough life and everything else. 
And so when he becomes the mayor of New York City, it's almost like he says, God has given me grace to be this mayor of this great city. I'm going to turn around and give other people grace. I'm going to bless the other people who are in our, in our city. So one of the things he liked to do is he would go down to the orphanages and the children's homes and he would like to just surprise them and come in and just, you know, it was a big treat for the mayor to be there. And he would go talk to the kids and he would try to encourage them and try to make them feel better about their situation and tell them that they can have a good life and good things can happen for them. He liked to ride around with the fire department. He would go and he would just, if they were going to a fire or whatever, he would climb on board and he would hang out with the fire department and try to encourage those guys and try to encourage the police department. And he was just a guy who loved to be with the people in his city. He loved to be present where people were. And in New York City, they had this kind of odd ordinance that was part of the laws and rules there in New York City. And it stated that any time they wanted to, the mayor of New York City could go to any of the courtrooms in New York City and tap the judge on the shoulder and say, hey, you can take a break. I'm going to take over as the judge for the next little while. And he actually mostly, and they said nobody ever used that ordinance. It was never anything that was on the books, but it was nothing that ever happened until this guy became mayor. And he decided he thought that would be fun. And so sometimes he would go down to the courtroom and tap the judge on the shoulder and say, hey, go take an early lunch or go take an early supper. I'm going to take over for you and I'm going to handle the rest of this docket, these cases tonight. And so this actually happened one time, according to to legend. This is hard to verify. There's some evidence that it actually did happen, and there's some evidence that it didn't actually happen. But it's a good illustration, so we're going to say it happened. How about that? He goes down to the poorest ward in New York City, and he taps the judge on the shoulder, and he says, I'm going to take the rest of your cases for the night. You can can go, go ahead, go home to your family. And so he's in this poor area of New York City, in this courtroom, Uh, during the time of the Great Depression, and they bring in this little lady who has been caught stealing a loaf of bread from a local store, one one in this poor area. And she's a grandmother. she's, She's up in years. And so they take her before the judge, who is now the mayor, and the mayor says to her, Ma'am, why did you steal this loaf of bread from this local store owner? And she said, Well, Your Honor, I got to tell you, my my son-in-law's a no-good bum. And he, he ran off, he left the family, we were in need, and he took off, we don't even know where he is. That happened a lot of times during the Depression. But he took off, we don't know where he is, and so he left just my daughter and her kids, my grandkids there in our home, and my daughter's gotten sick and she can't work anymore. And, and, and judge, we just got to the point where we didn't have any food in the house, and my grandchildren were starving, and I didn't want to do it, but, you know, against everything I wanted to do, I went down and I stole that loaf of bread so I would have something to feed my kids, my grandkids. And so the judge looks over at the store owner and says, Sir, under these circumstances, understanding that she didn't want to do this, but she's just trying to feed her family, can we drop the charges? And the store owner says, no, 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 we can't drop the charges. He said, this is a bad area already. It's a bad neighborhood. And I I feel for her, but you got to understand that if everybody comes in and starts stealing things and and, and they're let go with just a slap on the wrist, then everybody's going to come into my store and I'm going to lose business. Eventually, I'm going to lose money and I'm going to be the one in trouble and not going to be able to feed my family. So no, no, your honor, no mayor, I can't drop these charges. And so the mayor looks and he says, you know what, you're right. There was a crime committed here that was wrong done. And there has to be a fine, there has to be a punishment. So he said, here's the punishment. 
It's either $10, which was a huge amount of money in the time of the Great Depression. It's either $10 or it's 10 days in jail. And as the, as the judge said that, as the mayor said that, he actually took off his hat and reached in his back pocket and he said, the fine is $10 and I now pay it on her behalf and dropped it in the hat. He said, furthermore, I'm going to fine everybody in this courtroom 50 cents apiece for living in a city where a grandmother has to steal bread to, to, uh, to feed her grandchildren. And so they passed the hat around and everybody dropped 50 cent in on top of the $10 which was given to the store owner. And anyway, the hat comes back around and this little grandmother who comes into court for stealing bread leaves with $47.50 to feed her family with. And they said that everybody gave the judges or the mayor a standing ovation because of his judgment, because of his ruling in this case. That looks like grace, doesn't it? That looks like grace. There's another story I heard from a friend of mine who's a minister. And supposedly this happened back in the 1990s, about the time I was growing up. There were revival services going on in this little neighborhood church. And uh, this little neighborhood church, they had an evangelist, a guest speaker coming in. And one of the little boys in the neighborhood uh, had heard that there was going to be a speaker. And he'd never been to church in his life. And he wanted to go to church. And he wanted to just try it out and see how it was. So this little boy goes down to the church in his neighborhood. And it's the 1990s, so he's wearing his high-top tennis shoes. And he's, he's wearing his blue jeans. And he, he, he's wearing, when he shows up at the church at the door, he's wearing a bright red Budweiser t-shirt. And the pastor meets him at the back door. And he says, I'm from the neighborhood. I wanted to come to the services. And the pastor grabs him by the shirt and says, son, you can't come into this church. You can't come into the, this house of God dressed like that. That's a beer shirt, for goodness sakes. You can't come into our church dressed like that. Why don't you go back home? Why don't you find something more appropriate to wear? And then you can come back and then you can be part of our services. Well, the little boy goes home, but of course he doesn't come back. But his dad comes back instead. Dad comes to the door and says, I want to talk to the pastor. Pastor meets the dad at the back door. He says, why, why couldn't my son come into church? Why couldn't he be part of your services? The pastor says, well, he was dressed inappropriately. He was wearing a beer t-shirt. He was wearing a Budweiser t-shirt. And this is the house of God. And we can't have things like that coming into our church. And so I told him to go home and come back when he's better dressed. And the father said, well, he's home and I'm about to go back home and we won't be coming back. We'll never step foot in this church again in our lives. But pastor, before I go, I need to tell you one thing. The reason that, that, that my son was wearing that Budweiser t-shirt to church today was because he was trying to be appropriate and he was trying to look his best as he came to church. And he was wearing that shirt because it was the only shirt in his closet that didn't have any holes in it. And they left, and they never came back. Who showed grace? The mayor of New York City to this grandmother who was trying her best to feed her family and maybe did the wrong thing. Who showed grace? The mayor or this pastor? The second question I want to ask you is, which one looked more like Jesus? Which one looked more like Jesus? The mayor obviously showed more grace. Which one looked more like Jesus? I think the mayor in this situation looked more like Jesus Christ. Because Jesus takes us how we are. He doesn't, he's, his plan is not to leave us that way. His plan is to change us and to make us look more like himself. But he takes us as we are. He gives us grace. 
It's love that stoops down. It's love that cares about people. It's love that meets them where they are. Who should we be more like? That pastor who said, go away, you're not dressed right, never come back. Or that mayor who said, you know what, wrong things might have been done here, but I'm going to help you out, I'm going to make a way, I'm going to take care of it, and I'm going to meet you right where we are. I believe we should be more like Jesus. I believe we should be more like Paul. We should be people who receive grace from Jesus Christ so we might give that to other people and other people might come to know him. One more thing before we're done, and I hate that I even have to go here because it would be great if I could leave the sermon right here. But unfortunately, our culture is so messed up in our day and time that we have to talk a little bit more about what grace is because I think our culture has twisted grace the other way. Our culture kind of looks at it like this, that grace is, if somebody, say somebody is standing up here and they have chains wrapped all around them. From head to foot, they have chains wrapped all around them. They're padlocked. They can't hardly move. They're bound up and they're under bondage to these chains. Our culture defines grace as this. Walking by and seeing this person bound up in chains and you say, ah, those aren't really chains. It's okay. God doesn't mind your chains. In fact, those we'll just call those heavy metal accessories. Those are what those are. Those aren't really chains. You know, you're not really under bondage. God isn't really worried about it. You know, you're good. You're good just the way you are. And then we walk on. That's kind of how our culture sees grace. It's ignoring reality. It's ignoring truth. It's saying, I'm okay. You're okay. Everything's okay. Church, that's not what grace is. It's really not what grace is. Let me give you another verse that Paul wrote. It's Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's why grace is so important. It's offered to all men. It's offered to anybody who will accept it. Anybody who will repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ can be saved. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men instructing us to deny ungodliness. Wait a minute, does that really say that? Deny ungodliness, surely that that can't be right. Not, Not by our cultural definition of grace. And to deny worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What does grace do? Grace actually tells the truth. Real grace tells the truth. Real grace doesn't walk by somebody who's bound up in chains, tied up and padlocked and in spiritual bondage. Grace doesn't walk by and say, those aren't really chains. No, what grace walks by and says, you're in chains. These things are not good. God does not want you in these chains. But guess what? I love you where you are. Even in those chains, even bound up, even in sin, even in whatever situation you're in, I love you and I care about you. And guess what? Even better than that, God does too. I love you and God loves you. And I will do anything in my power. I will stoop, I will crawl, I'll do whatever to try to help you get out of these chains so that you can walk in freedom. Better yet, because I can't save anybody, I know the guy who's the chain breaker and I'll point you to him. I'll tell you about him. That's what grace really does. It doesn't deny the reality of the situation. It acknowledges the reality of the situation, but says, let me get in there and help you. Let me love you right where you are. Let me point you to one who can set you free. The Bible tells us it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's not for bondage and we pretend we're not in bondage. That's not grace. Grace says, look, we're going to try to live 
Uh, we're going to have salvation through denying ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, true grace, real grace leads to holiness. Amen, Brent. That's good preaching right there. Real grace leads to holiness. It doesn't lead us to stay in bondage and say, yeah, but God's cool with it now. No, that's not what grace is all about. Grace is about setting us free so we can walk in freedom and we can go wherever Christ leads. We can follow Him without the weight of sin, without those things that hold us back, so that we can run in freedom, live in freedom, and eventually we'll have eternal life in freedom. That's what grace really does. And so I want to make sure that we understand that, that grace is not just just saying our sin's not wrong and, and we don't ever speak the truth. That's not what grace is. In our culture, it's just really not popular to speak the truth very much. If you think it is popular to speak the truth, go speak it sometime. See what happens. If you go out there and you can put... And the Bible tells us to speak the truth how? In love. Speak the truth in love. Even if you speak the truth in love now, you're going to have people come by and say, no, 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 that's not the way to operate. You, you've got to ignore the sin. You've got to act like it's, the, it's not there. You've got to act like people aren't in bondage. All that does is leave those people in bondage. If there are people in chains, if there are people in spiritual bondage, God wants to set them free and He wants to use us to do it. So truly, if we're a grace dispenser, we're also going to tell the truth sometimes. Even when it's unpopular. Even when people tell us, look, you know, you shouldn't really be saying that. Look, you shouldn't bring that up. Well, let's just not talk about those sort of things. No, love and grace sometimes tells the truth. It points out the chains. It points out the problem and says, I love you though where you are and I will help you get free from this sort of thing. Paul was a grace dispenser. The Apostle Paul, that's what his whole life was about. What's your whole life about? I hope that we come to the point of maturity, Christian maturity, where we know that our whole life is about giving somebody else grace. Stooping down, loving them right where they are, but telling them there's a better way, there's a Savior that can save them and it can set them free so that they can run in freedom and they can enjoy this life and they can be ready for eternity. That's what God wants us to do. That's what God's plan is for me and for you. So how are we doing? How are we doing Monday through Saturday? When we're out of here, because it's good in here, you know, we can praise the Lord and we can smile at each other. And, oh, yeah, 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 I'm on fire for God. How are we doing Monday through Saturday? Are we dispensers of grace? Do people see us and say, that's a person who will tell me the truth, but they'll tell me the truth in love. They'll help me get set free. They'll point me to something better. Their life looks different. Their family looks different. Everything they do is different, and I want to be part of it. Is that our life or is that not our life? I can't answer for you and you can't answer for me. But I know that God is calling us to be like Paul. He's calling us to be grace dispensers. He's calling us to let everybody know in this world that there is a Savior who loves them and a Savior who can set them free. Stand with me this morning if you would. Father, we just need your grace so much. And God, we're not perfect, and we're not claiming to be. But Lord, we know that your grace moves us from glory to glory. God, we know that your grace is turning us into the image of Jesus Christ. 
God, we know that we're not called just to keep grace to ourselves, but we're called to speak into this world, to speak the truth into this world in love so that people might be set free from their bondage, set free from their chains. Father, I pray you'd help us to be bold. I pray that you would help us to be wise. God, I pray that you would help us to know just how wonderful what we have received is, the grace that we were given. Here's the Apostle Paul wanting to kill the church, wanting to destroy the church. And Lord Jesus, you break in in his life and you totally reorient his life where he serves you and he gets the the honor of being one of the greatest missionaries of all time. That's grace. And Father, I pray that would be found in our lives and you would help us to share that with other people. Lord, I love you today. I praise you. We praise you to get today, God. I pray you would be in this church and you would continue to work. You would continue to bless. Lord, help worship not end when we leave this door today, God, but help the worship to continue that everything we do, everything we say is to you and to your glory. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the salvation that he offers us. We thank you for grace. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. On your way out, remember our giving box, your tithes and offerings. Keep the doors open so we can reach more and more people with the grace of Jesus Christ. I love you and there's nothing you can do about it. I hope you have a great week. God bless you.